Counselor, God, Father, Prince. Exalted titles declared by a prophet. Names whispered for generations by an anxious and hurting people. These words were given to the nation of Judah, the people of God, as they faced captivity, their moment of reckoning in the wake of their rebellion. Yet, even as they were confronted with the consequences of their sin, they received the promise of a king, a beacon of hope to hold as they walked under the shadow of death. As they carried the promise, they knew what these words meant. They knew the weight of these titles. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Israel's kings and prophets longed to be effective counselors. The desire was seen in the humble prayers of Solomon, in the frustrated confessions of Jeremiah. They wanted to be a source of wisdom, familiar with the path of goodness, fluent in the ways of righteousness, able to lead those willing to listen. Yet there were not many willing to listen. Humanity loves to pursue our own ambition, doing what is right in our eyes, following in the steps of our forefather and mother, the ones who preferred the lies of a serpent over the kindness of their creator, the ones whose pursuit of a false counselor was replicated by every one of their descendants. Heeding the word of wicked counselors led to our death and depression, to our despair and destruction. Any longing for goodness and righteousness we had remained unfulfilled. So for centuries, the people of God carried the hope of a wonderful counselor, one whose wisdom would be incomprehensible, one whose life would shine so brightly the darkness would flee. A prophet who could guide us to something greater than temporary goodness or fleeting righteousness. A king who would lead to an everlasting kingdom, to life and life abundant, to glory without end. This is the hope we carried. This was the teacher we longed for. The wonderful counselor has a name. His name is Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6 says this, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, Merry Christmas, Harvest. How are we doing? Good morning. Do me a favor, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 11. We're going to spend our time looking at a prophecy about this wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. And um, as you're turning there, what I want to do is, is I just want to, to kind of remind you or to make clear for you, the goal of the next three weeks is not to talk about or teach about Christmas. There's actually a very clear goal that what we're trying to accomplish here at Harvest, it's this. It's to get our hearts and minds ready for Christmas. This is not a Christmas series. This is an Advent series. I want to do everything I can to prepare our hearts to celebrate this season. Because here's what I mean. Christmas is so important that if you and I don't prepare for it, we're going to waste it. Um, I remember when I was a senior in high school at a state final soccer game, we had made it to the championship game, and the game was at a Saturday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning, and we got to the field at 7 o'clock. 
It was about 25 degrees outside. It was a cold November day, but we got there early to prepare. It was important. We needed to be there. We needed to prepare. A Christmas is like that. We will waste what God wants for us if we don't prepare. So the plan this morning is very, very simple. I'm going to look at what it means that Jesus is our wonderful counselor, and then I'm going to break down very real implications that that has for us today and this season. So follow along as I read Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. Here's what it says. It says this. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth." And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So what I want to do to start this morning is we're just going to look at at these few verses. We're starting with the first five. We're going to see four different ways our wonderful counselor is described. Here's the first, um, is that he would be from the line of David that he would come in the kingly line of King David. The first verse says that out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot shall spring forth. And Jesse was David's father. And when it says a shoot shall spring forth, it's the idea of a tree and a shoot is a branch. So so that this king would come from the line of Jesse, who was David's father. And this is why this is important, because in Israel, David was God's king. When Israel decided they want a king, uh, God was like, all right, you guys anoint who you want. And they anointed this tall, strong, brave warrior named Saul. But his heart was far from the Lord. And when he failed, God said, all right, now I'm gonna take my turn and I'm going to anoint my king, my leader, someone whose heart would be like mine. And that was David. And so what you need to understand just in that first verse, what's important that the reason that this King Jesus would be from the line of David would be because it would be a king of God's choosing. Look at verse two. It says this, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Okay, here's the second thing we know about this wonderful counselor. He will perfectly know what is right. I I love this. In a sense, he is a perfect prophet. It says that he will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and he won't judge like you and I do. He won't get fooled by false testimony. He won't make decisions just by what he sees or wants or feels. And I think if you're like me, you can admit that some of the worst decisions we've ever made in our lives is when we made decisions based on surface level knowledge. What we saw, what looked good, what tasted good, what felt good, or maybe we believed someone who misled us and that's led to great pain in our lives. It said, no, 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 that this wonderful counselor will not judge like you and I do but he will have a perfect spirit of wisdom and understanding. But it doesn't end there. We also know that he will have the power to perfectly execute righteousness. And I love this. Look at verse two again. 
says not only does he have a spirit of wisdom and understanding, but it says the spirit of counsel and of might. And that means that this wonderful counselor, he doesn't just know what's right, but he has a spirit of power that will allow him to execute justice and righteousness. This isn't the type of counselor that you and I think of when we think of counselors, right? When we think of counselors, we we tend to think of a guy in their 50s or 60s. Um, Maybe they are wearing a sweater, probably bald, wearing glasses, and they're kind of sitting in a chair, they're crossing their legs, and they're really good listeners, right? And you go and you pay an exorbitant amount of money to uh, talk about what's going on in your life, and they listen, and they nod, and they shake their head, and hopefully, at the end, they give you some good advice and help you understand things and, and tell you what to do. Well, this idea of counselor in Scripture, it's this idea of power and might, and not only will he know perfectly what is right, he will perfectly be able to execute it. Isn't it frustrating when you see something that's unjust or wrong and there's nothing you can do about it? Have you ever felt that before where where maybe you've been mistreated or you've seen something that's not fair and there's nothing you can do about it? Um, Drives us crazy, right? Um, My girls, they're 10 and uh, they are rule followers to the T. They're good, they behave, like parent-teacher conferences are always a breeze, they never get in trouble. But the thing that stresses them out the most, and there's been many days where they come home from school and they're in tears, and the problem is, is it's like, what's going on, Ashley? And they're like, my class was terrible today. They didn't listen, they didn't obey the teacher, the teacher got mad, the teacher got frustrated, she yelled at us, and I was like, were, were you talking out of turn? Were you not listening? And she's like, no, I was doing everything the teacher asked, nobody else would, and when I told them to be quiet, they wouldn't listen. It's that powerless feeling of knowing what's right but not being able to effectuate it. This would happen in Israel all the time. God would bring a prophet to the nation to call them to righteousness and the king wouldn't listen and the people wouldn't listen and they would be like a voice in the wilderness. Okay, but that's not Jesus. He is not a powerless voice calling people to what's right without being able to execute it. He has the perfect authority and power to execute what is right. Fourth thing we see is that he will perfectly represent the poor and the meek. Look at verse four. It says, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And this idea that with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. When we think of judgment, we, we, we think of harsh or condemning. That's not what this passage is saying at all. It's saying he will give the poor and the meek, he will give them justice. He will treat them fairly. He will be a voice for the voiceless. He will be an advocate for those who don't have advocates. Church, look here, because I believe this has implications for us. Jesus went out of his way to unite himself with the lowly, both in heart and in actual life circumstances. Right, Jesus would famously say in one of his sermons that true religion is to care for the widow and orphan in their need. That that, that what loving God means, it's more than just believing the right thing, it's more than just talking a good game. We have to love those and care for those who have no one else to care for them or love them and who are truly in need. Jesus would not come as a prince or a ruler, but as a kid from a poor family whose dad was a carpenter. 
There's a story in the Gospels that when Jesus comes to the temple to, to get circumcised, that his parents bring two birds to, as payment for the, the circumcision. Well, if you understand what that means, um, two birds was like what the lowest level of society had to provide for a circumcision. They were in the lowest tax bracket. They didn't have much. Jesus would live most of his ministry and most of his adult life without a home. He wouldn't be just a representative for the mighty or for the powerful or for the elite, but he would identify with the poor and promise them justice and equity. Can I want you to see something about this wonderful counsel. You see in my last three points, I put in parentheses, prophet, king, and priest. This is really significant because you need to understand that these were the three branches of government in Israel. When God established government, he established three different types of rulers. There would be the prophets. They would be the ones that would speak for God. They would have the message from God to the people. They would um, call them out over their sin. They would call them to righteousness. They would call them to repent. They would um, encourage them to follow the law. They would speak for God. That was their job. The kings, they would rule and lead and organize. They would go to war. They would build armies. They would make sure the taxes were being paid. They were making sure that the, 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 the citizens had everything that they needed. They, they were the leaders, overseers, organizers. The priests were the ones who worked in the temple, and they had two jobs. They, um, their first job was is they cared for the needs of people who needed help. They were pastoral. They were counselors. That's often why in the Gospels that when Jesus did a lot of his miracles, he did them right outside the temple or the synagogues because that's where people would leave people who were lame or, or who were sick or who needed help. They knew that the temple and the priests would help take care and meet the needs of those people. The other thing the priests would do is, is that they would represent the people to God that once a year the high priest would enter the presence of God, the holy of holies, and he would make a sacrifice for the entire nation. And you wanna know what's amazing? After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know God never anoints another prophet. He doesn't need to, Jesus perfectly fulfills that office. There's never another king in Israel. There's no need. Jesus is the ruling and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. The uh, sacrificial system has ended. The temple system has been replaced with the church because we don't have a need to have anyone represent us to God anymore because Jesus has perfectly done that in his life, death, and resurrection. He has fulfilled all of these offices. Our wonderful counselor knows what's right, has the power to execute it, and unites himself with us. Okay, and here's what I want you to see. Up until verse six, this counselor sounds impressive, but he sounds like a really, really good king or a really, really good ruler. He just sounds like a good man, a good king, a good ruler that, that, that's going to come and bring in a season of joy and peace for the nation of Israel. Okay, but what God's gonna do in verse six is he's gonna blow the lid off of our expectations of who this wonderful counselor will be. Look at verse six. It says this, it says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not uh, hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for all the peoples. Of him the nation shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." You see, what Isaiah is saying here is, is this isn't just a man, but this will be a supernatural leader who will heal the world. This isn't just a man. This is a supernatural leader who will heal the world. It says, all right, listen, he's not just going to be a king. He is going to do things that only God could do. Listen to the words he uses. It says that the bear and the calf will lie together and their children will play together. There will be no more death. There will be no more murder. There will be no more pain. It says that a young child will play near the hole of a cobra. We don't have to worry about sickness or disease or poison. It says that the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of God like waters cover the sea. This would be a leader that would change the course of history. And look at verse 10, I love this. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples. Do you notice the difference between verses one and 10? Both talk about Jesse, but they talk about him in different ways. In verse one, this wonderful counselor is described as a shoot of Jesse coming from the line of Jesse. But in verse 10, he's called the root of Jesse. Did you see the significance in that? That not only would he be a man that comes from the line of David, but he would also be the one that was there before the line was even established. He would be fully God, fully man, wonderful counselor, savior of the world. And here's the big idea, church. And this is where we're gonna start to get really practical. It's this. It's that the wisdom of the world will always bow to our wonderful counselor that you and I can know for certain this Christmas that the wisdom of our world will always bow to our wonderful counselor. And here's why. Because our wonderful counselor, Jesus, is more than just a man. He is the supernatural creator God of the universe. But I think about it. You and I are so limited, right? Like, why did you come into this place this morning tired? Because you're limited. We're limited in energy and strength. Why, if I preach five minutes longer than I usually do, you guys will be freaking out because you're so hungry? Because we're limited. We're limited in strength. We're limited in knowledge. We're limited in wisdom. We're limited in understanding. We're limited in perspective. We're limited in righteousness. Jesus is not limited in any of these things. Our wonderful counselor is perfect in all of these areas. And so what I wanna do with the rest of our time is I wanna focus our minds around the supernatural power of what you and I believe. And so what I wanna do is I wanna give us a Christmas warning, and it's this. Um, Do not neglect the supernatural power of Christianity. Christianity is not just a religion. It's not a philosophy. It's not a line of thinking. We adhere to, we embrace a supernatural faith. First thing I wanna talk about is the supernatural nature of Jesus. Like, think about it. This Christmas, you and I are celebrating the fact that the creator God of the world, who was there before the existence of time, was born to a virgin, right? There's miracles all over that, right? 
Like to be a Christian, we believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. I'm gonna say this very, very clearly. You can't be a Christian and deny the miraculous. There is supernatural all over what we believe and here's the tension point, right? In a society or a culture that's dominated by secularism, that denies the miraculous, that denies the supernatural, we know that there are many in our culture who would openly mock us for believing that a virgin could conceive a son, right? Well, here's some encouragement to you. You need to understand the wisdom of the world has always mocked the things of God and God and his message has prevailed over and over and over again. And I wanna prove it to you. Turn back one chapter to chapter 10. I talked about this last week. Uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're prophesying to Judah right before Judah's taken over into captivity by the Assyrians. And in Isaiah 10, actually what's happened is, is the Assyrian army is growing. They're a world power and they're led by a, a leader named Sennacherib. And Sennacherib, like you would expect a world powerful leader to be, he's full of himself. He's arrogant. You know, he's the kind of guy that works out for four hours in the morning, then is drinking protein shakes all day to kind of show everyone how strong he is. He is very, very impressed with his own strength. And in fact, he actually mocks God. And he says, what kind of God could stop my armies? What kind of God could stop my horses? I am the one in control. Nothing can stop me. And in Isaiah 10, it says that God casts judgment on the Assyrians. And look what he says about their leader in verse 15. It says, shall the ax boast over him who hews it? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as a staff should lift him who is not wood. See what God is saying? He's saying, Sennacherib, you're just a tool in my hand. You're accomplishing my purposes, and I will cast you aside as soon as I am done with you. The power of the Assyrians was never a threat to the supernatural power of God. And I mean, think about Christianity, right? The Romans laughed off Christianity, right? Who are these fools that, that, that are worshiping the, 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 this peasant teacher? Let's light them on fire. Let's feed them to the lions. We'll get them back in line. And then a few hundred years later, the, the Christianity is such a wildfire spreading throughout the Roman empire that most historians believe that Constantine embraced Christianity, not because of some revelation he had, but because it was the smart political thing to do. He knew that Christianity was a force that was turning the Roman empire upside down, and he wanted to get in when the getting was good. It could not be stopped. Right? Think about the spirit of secularism. There is no God. We are at the center. We know everything. Right? Listen, it has no power to stop the supernatural work of God. You know that right now, today, over one or almost one third of all humanity um, professes Jesus Christ as their Savior? A little over 2.3 billion, uh, as done by a Pew Research poll. In all of the areas of the world where people said that Christianity will never take root, it's flourishing and exploding. People are like, it'll never take root in Africa. There's too much tradition. There, 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 there's too many obstacles. It is blowing up that continent. People are like, it's never going to grow in China. It's never going to grow in Korea. It's never going to grow in these places. And it is a wild fire that cannot be stopped because it is a supernatural faith. Second thing I want to talk about is the supernatural impact of Jesus's life. Think about it. Jesus was a man who was never formally educated, who was born to poor parents in a small occupied territory of the Roman Empire, who lived the first 30 years of his life in complete anonymity, and very, very early into his public ministry, he was brutally executed for treason. 
Like if you were going to game plan how to change the world, that's not the play you would run. He would be born in Rome. He would be a king. He would have a long legacy of ruling and reigning. And reigning. None of that happened. And yet he is undoubtedly the most influential figure in all of human history. Again, one third of humanity acknowledges that this Jesus is the savior of the world. There have been entire civilizations founded and countries founded on his principles and his teaching. It can only be attributed to a supernatural movement of God. And there's such a beautiful picture of this in the Christmas story. I wanna talk for a moment about the three wise men. You guys know this story, right? That, that after Jesus is born, all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, the, these three men show up and all it tells us is that they're from the East and they come and they worship this child and they give him expensive gifts. Well, ever since I was young, I've always been fascinated by this. I'm like, who were these guys? Like, I want more about the three wise men. How did they follow this star? How did they know about the prophecies of the Messiah? Like, how did this happen? What is their story? And what's cool is, is what most biblical scholars believe is they were influenced by the writings of Daniel, right? So Daniel was taken into captivity out east. He rose in prominence and he did a ton of prophetic writing. Most people believe that these guys studied the works of Daniel, which uh, clued them into the fact that a Messiah was coming. But I tell you what, when I get to heaven one day, the three wise men are gonna be in my crew. That's who I'm hanging out with. When you get to heaven and if I'm already there, if you wanna find me, find the three wise men. These guys are fascinating because just like they come and they worship Jesus, they instantly disappear and we never hear from them again. So the question is, is why does God add these three wise men or these three kings in this story? Listen, because it's a beautiful picture or metaphor that the wisdom of the world would bow to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These men represented the wisdom of the world. They were rulers, they were kings, they were astrologers, they had power, they had influence, they had knowledge, and they travel across the known world to bow at the feet of Jesus. The wisdom of the world will always bow to the wonderful counselor. All right, so I gave a Christmas warning. Now I wanna amp it up a little bit. I wanna give a Christmas nightmare. I maybe should have titled this A Nightmare Before Christmas, but here's my main concern for us right now is that we would take our wonderful counselor for granted. My biggest concern is that we would take our wonderful counselor for granted. And, and here's what I mean. I'm gonna say this very, very clearly. It's impossible to counsel someone who thinks they know everything already, right? How many of you have high school kids or had high school kids? You know this to be true, right? When someone thinks they know all the answers, you can't counsel them. And here's my fear. I think if we could be honest right now, many of you came into this room this morning with an attitude and a disposition of, I know all of this already. I know the Christmas story. I've been around church for a long time. There's nothing new for me. And here's the thing, when we come with the attitude of I know everything and there is nothing here for me, it's going to limit the supernatural power of the gospel in our lives because the wonderful counselor can't counsel us when we think we have all of the answers. If you and I think we know everything there is to know, we will limit the power of the supernatural in our lives. And I just wanna play this out. So I'm gonna use um, Elias. You can, you can say, I'm just gonna use you as an example. Um, 
wave your hand so everyone knows who you are. This, this is Elias. He's in my small group, so I'm going to pick on him. Um, I think there's two different dispositions that we can have when we come in to this Christmas season or into church or, or when we think about God's word. Um, and, and I want you to show me this one, Elias. Show me like the, the, the disposition of I know everything already. Like cross your arms, sit back. Yeah, yeah, you look like this. Like I've got this, I've got this down. I, I, I know everything. And I think if we were honest, a lot of our hearts are in this position. Like I know what church is gonna be. We're gonna sing some songs. Cal's gonna preach a message, but I know this stuff. I know what Christmas is. I've read this books. I've seen the stories. I've seen the movies. I know how it's gonna go. Okay, here's another disposition we can have. And this is the one I want us to have. Um, lean forward like you're really engaged, like your wife's talking to you, right? <laughs> Man, I, I really care about what you're saying. I, I wanna hear what's going on. I'm, I'm all in. Like, like, listen, that disposition right there is how the Lord is going to supernaturally move and change our hearts. Like, think about it. If we view God's word as a book that we know all, everything in it, are we gonna come into that with any expectation? Well, the Bible says that God's word, word is alive and active and sharper than two, any two-edged sword. That what God wants for us when we read the scriptures, he wants to do surgery on our hearts and cut out what is broken and unhealthy and heal us. That'll never happen when we come like this, right? Are you going to get everything that the Lord wants from you when you come into church and you're like, yeah, I, I, I know this. I've been through this. This is all normal for me. Or are you like, man, the spirit of God is present in this room when we lift high the name of Jesus in a way that's different than at any other moment in our week. And he wants to draw near and he wants to communicate with us and he wants to speak to us and he wants to move our hearts, Listen, Christmas isn't going to mean anything to you if you come with your arms crossed being like, I've done Christmas a bunch before. I know all the stories. Do you have an expectation that God is going to amaze you with the most amazing story ever told, the story of God's love for us? Where is your heart as you enter this room and enter this season? You know, it's funny, I um, often will watch movies with Mary and uh, the thing about me, like when I watch a movie, the thing I want most is I don't want to know anything about it. I want to be completely surprised. Like I'm happiest if like Tyler would be like, hey, Cal, I watched this movie. It's awesome. And I'll be like, all right, I'll watch it. I don't want to see previews. I don't want to know what the plot is. I just want to be surprised. All right, my wife is the exact opposite. My, my wife, she's really into the Hallmark Christmas movies. And, and here's the thing about Hallmark Christmas movies. You know, there's like a million of them and they're all the same exact movie. It's the same exact plot over and over and over again. And I'm like, why are you doing this to yourself? This is brain damage. And she's like, no, it's a warm Christmas blanket. It makes me feel good. And I'm like, no, no, I'm never watching a movie twice because I don't want to know what happens. And listen, I think that attitude's okay when it comes to movies, but there has to be the gear in us that we can come to the true familiar story of God's amazing love and still be captivated by it. And if we can't do that, that is a cancer to our souls. Are you captivated by God's love for you this season? Okay, so I wanna close our time together with this. I just wanna ask us three Advent questions that will help get our hearts ready for Christmas. Here's the first, and I want you to be very, very personal about this. Do you enter this season with supernatural amazement? Like, I just wanna be very, very straight with you. Are you still blown away by God's love for you? Like, when you think that the creator God of the universe came in a manger, does that move you? Does that bring you to tears that God 
loves us so much he gave everything that he might have a relationship with us? Is that personal? Are you amazed? Here's the next one, and I think this is probably the biggest tell of where our hearts are at. Um, Do you pray with supernatural expectation? Do I pray like I believe that I have a supernatural faith? Do I pray that like I believe that God's alive and he hears and he has the power to change things supernaturally? Uh, just a couple weeks ago, we had a guy in our church uh, travel out, uh, out of state to visit a family member and uh, he got COVID and he got really, really sick and he had to be rushed to a, an emergency room and he was put on a ventilator and, and the doctors and nurses called the rest of the family that was here to go out and be with him because they didn't think he was gonna make it. And uh, so the family uh, reached out to the church and we have this thing that's called a prayer chain. I know many of you are on it where when there's very, very pressing needs, we, we send it out in an email and we get people praying for it. And we had hundreds of people praying for this man. And uh, his family got out there and two days later, he was off the ventilator and he was back home. And um, the nurse who, who her full-time job is caring for these patients says, I've never seen anything like this before. It can only be attributed to a supernatural act of God. Listen, I'm gonna trust the expert on that one, right? Listen, we have a God who answers prayer. Just last night after the church, we had a lady come to us and wanted us to anoint her with oil and pray over her because she's battling some health things and we pray with the expectation that God's gonna hear and God's gonna heal. There's a lot of brokenness in our world and in our lives. Are we praying with supernatural expectation? And then the third is this, do we live with supernatural joy? Right, the most famous Christmas carol of all, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And I think in so many ways, the most simplest is the best explanation that our lives should be defined by joy because we have the Lord. That the thing that should characterize our relationships and our lives is not what we have, it's not what we do, it's not our activities, it's not how we vote, it's not any of the things the world would say define yourself by. We should be defined by joy because our wonderful counselor is here and he is perfect, he is reliable. In a world that is spiraling into chaos, we know that our wonderful counselor knows perfectly what is right, but he doesn't just know it, he has the power to execute it. He is an anchor in the storm and he will provide justice and equity in a broken world. We have a lot to be joyful for, amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this season. I thank you for the gift of your son. And God, I just pray that you would do a supernatural work in our hearts, that this Christmas would be meaningful, that this Christmas would draw us closer to you, that we would be people that are filled with joy and hope and life. We need you. We love you. We are so thankful for everything you've done for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.